Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Work in Digital Humanities, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia-Baird, host of the channel, and today I'm talking to Mike Jones, author of Artifacts, Archives, and Documentation in the Relational Museum, published by Routledge in 2021. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you today um, about this fantastic book, um, and I'm really, really excited to dig into some of the details. But we like to begin by getting people to talk a little bit about themselves. So, Mike, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got to the topic of the Relational Museum? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I'm speaking to you today from Canberra in Australia, uh, and I want to acknowledge that uh, although it's now referred to as Canberra, I'm speaking from Nunawal and Nambri country and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, and particularly in the work that I do now, it's uh, an important acknowledgement to make the country that we're on here, uh, although we live and work here uh, and have done since the British arrived, uh, this country has been here as a cultural landscape and a social landscape for many thousands of years and hundreds and hundreds of generations. Um, so yes, speaking to you from Nunawal land, this evening. And my background in coming to this book, uh, I I started in academia doing art history, uh, but always had an interest in museums and collections as part of that work. And then I wandered off to the corporate sector for a while, uh, worked in the corporate sector for a few years, and then found myself back in academia working in archives and working on sort of archivally focused research projects. Uh, and as part of that, from the beginning of that work, which was in about 2008, uh, I was doing a lot of work with digital archival documentation, um, doing relational description of not just archival collections, but the networks of people and organizations and other material, sort of contextual material that uh, is related to archival collections, and working with digital humanities scholars and on public history projects. Uh, as part of that, I started working with a historian, Reby Taylor, uh, who's done a lot of work on collectors and collections, um, particularly collectors in Tasmania uh, who have collected indigenous material, Aboriginal material like stone tools, taken them back to museums in the UK. Um, One of those was Ernest Westlake, who came out to Tasmania in the early 20th century and collected about 13,000 stone tools, which he then took back to the UK. And those are in the uh, Oxford University Museum of Natural History. Um, I started working with Reby on this collection and was digitizing the archives there and helping her document the archives there. Uh, so there were notebooks and correspondence with his family while he was in Tasmania and him writing to other collectors and started to get really intrigued by the fact that this really rich documentary material with all of this cultural knowledge and this um, sort of fascinating contextual knowledge and, and this history was stored so separately from the stone tools and the museum collections. It was in a kind of different part of the museum. It was looked after by different staff. It was documented in different ways and in different systems um, and started to explore this, this lack of connection between different sort of format types and collections within these institutions. So Reby and I continued this work. Um, we then started to look at similar issues in Museums Victoria, which is the, the big kind of museum um, or 
group of museums in Melbourne, in Australia, where I was living and working at that time. And found the same thing there, you know, this large museum with some really established sort of digital systems uh, and ways of working still had these this separation between material that made it very difficult to find, for example, the correspondence or the field books that were related to museum collections. Um, we thought about getting a little sort of seed funded project up and running and thought, well, we could you know, spend a few months on this and dig into this idea, but realized quite quickly in talking with museum staff in particular, that it was a much bigger issue than that. And it really required some more kind of intensive work. And around that time, an opportunity for a PhD scholarship came along, uh, which I wrote up a, a project proposal for, I applied for and was successful in applying for that PhD scholarship. And it was called the McCoy Scholarship. So Frederick McCoy uh, was the first director of or the National Museum of Victoria, as it was when it was first founded uh, in the 19th century. And he was also one of the first professors at the University of Melbourne. So this is a scholarship particularly for looking at kind of um, links between these two institutions uh, and turned this into a doctoral research project, looking at how archives and artifacts and other material had become separated in large museums and other institutions how the documentation had become separated as well, and some of the work that we might do using some of those skills around archival documentation and relational documentation to think about how we could start joining these things up more effectively and the different sort of concepts that we could maybe use to apply that. Uh, so I started that PhD in 2014. Um, it took me a few years. Uh, then following that, uh, adapted that PhD, rewrote a couple of chapters, added some additional material, uh, and then that was the basis of the the book that was released this year. And we're certainly going to explore some of those topics um, today. But before we do so, it might be helpful, I think, to to explain um, to listeners who might be, I suppose, less familiar with some of these terms. What actually do you mean by this relational um, museum, which which figures in the in the title? Um, and why and how has this concept of the relational museum become increasingly important in recent years, and especially to to your type of scholarship? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's a term that's being increasingly used in museum scholarship uh, in a variety of contexts, and it kind of is a is a bit of a grab bag of a variety of changes that have been happening in museums uh, over the last couple of generations, really. Uh, it's about this sort of shift from museums as authoritative institutions, uh, managing objects, specimens, things with really fixed meanings and sort of stable classification structures using these to communicate facts about the world to the public kind of authoritative institutions, uh, the, the holders of knowledge, um, disseminating this knowledge to people, um, often sort of characterized as disseminating it to people to kind of edify the community to, uh, you know, for people's own good, really. Um, that really started to shift as the 20th century went on. Um, there were shifts around things like starting to think about nonlinear ways of presenting material, uh, there were pushes from uh, through the international uh, museum sector from places like Benin and Latin America in the 70s who were calling for more socially engaged kind of processes in museums. There was new museology as a theory that came through in the kind of 1980s that was looking beyond just the methods and practice of how to actually kind of work in museums to look at notions of power and the way that museums structure knowledge and communicate that knowledge more broadly. Uh, as part of this, there was increasing pressure from colonized parts of the world, from indigenous communities, saying, you know, you need to recognize and incorporate our perspectives, our knowledge systems, our ways of looking at the world. Um, there was a lot of this that was revealing that the meaning of artifacts and the meaning of collections was 
quite kind of contingent and contextual and it shift and changed through time. And that was because of the relationships that those objects and those materials had to uh, collectors, to institutions, to communities, to scholars, and that those relationships were sort of constantly evolving and shifting. Um, so that's kind of continued over recent decades, uh, continued calls for new voices in the museum, kind of shifts in the power structures of museums. Uh, you see it right up to the present day, there are things like the um, museums are not neutral movement that people might have seen. Uh, you know, you can buy t-shirts, you can buy stickers. Um, there's the International Council of Museums. They tried to put forward a new definition of uh, the museum uh, at their recent conference. It was a conference in Kyoto, um, when was that, 2019? And uh, they were saying that museums are polyphonic spaces and participatory spaces and incorporating ideas of social justice and contributions to democracy. Uh, it was a really controversial kind of uh, attempt to shift the, the definition of museums in that direction. But that's all kind of part of this broader movement into a, a more kind of relational entangled kind of notion of, of what a museum is in a society and how meaning operates through objects and collections. Um, so the relational museum as a concept overall it kind of incorporates all of those ideas. Uh, as I said, it's a bit of a kind of grab bag concept. Uh, in the book, I quote the museologist and museum planner, Duncan Grucock, uh, and he calls this the sort of varying attempts, and this is his list, to reimagine the contemporary museum as connected, plural, distributed, multivocal, effective, material, embodied, experiential, political, performative, and participatory. Um, and all of those kind of elements and all the attempts to to move the museum in that kind of direction all kind of comes under that broader term of the, the relational museum. And you do look at a lot of that history of, of the museum and kind of how it's shifting towards the relational museum in the book. And, mm. you know, you start off in chapter one, you know, you're looking at the history of museums and archival documentation and you you really try and show the, the kind of contextualization and how it is that we've ended up in this modern museum, which has this very standard separation of archives and other collection types. And I was mm. wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about that history. You know, why is it that we've had that separation between collections and, and archive collections um, and why it's really actually so important to understand why that's come about and become so ubiquitous throughout museums globally? Yeah, and that was kind of my starting point in this project, I guess. Um, you know, as I mentioned, doing the work with with Reby Taylor and and with Museums Victoria, you know, seeing this split, and because I'd been working on projects that were all about joining up knowledge and joining up um, collections, I was really curious about why this this split was there. And as with all these sort of questions, you think, well, there might be a a relatively straightforward answer, and it turns out there's not. It turns out it's a whole sort of complex of different things that all sort of came together um, over quite a long period of time. So to dig back into a bit of that history, uh, records and archives and documentary material have always been a really central part of museums, uh, both in terms of the way that they manage collections, uh, but also as collections in their own right. Uh, in a lot of the, the big early institutions, uh, including some of the earliest kind of examples of public museums like the Ashmolean or the British Museum, um, you know, documentary or manuscript collections, uh, not really in an archival sense, but in a sense of uh, you know, unpublished material uh, or paper-based materials were really foundational parts of their collections from a really early stage. But they also started to generate, as you can imagine, enormous amounts of documentation themselves. Uh, 
you know, there was a documentation of collections. There was uh, there were registers uh, registering what was coming into the museum and you know what its name was, what its date was, who it was donated by, or where it was acquired from. Um, you know, places where objects have been coming in from, collectors that have been coming in from all around the world. The sort of correspondence that was used in the 19th century, for example, to to manage these huge networks of collectors that were out in sort of colonial regions and um, and other parts of the world. No, and just as an aside here, I mean, a lot of what I'm talking about here is is very much the kind of European and English-speaking world conception of museums, uh, and my book is kind of focused on that region, so it's what I'm going to talk about mostly today. Uh, there are different histories uh, in places like, uh, say, Asia or parts of Scandinavia or other parts of Europe um, that I won't be talking about today. But you know, if we think of the UK, of America, of Australia, um, of parts of Western Europe, um, you know, this is the way that those institutions operated. That material was all kind of managed by curators and clerical staff for a lot of that time. Um, so they didn't have professional archivists who were in charge of the museum archive. Uh, it was done by filing clerks or by librarians or curators managed their own files and sets of collections materials. The archival profession didn't really get started. Uh, I mean, it's been traced back to kind of French Revolution, uh, but the first manual of, of archives is really considered the Dutch manual, which was in uh, 1898. Um, so sort of just at the start of the 20th century, essentially. Uh, and it was in the 20th century that archivists started to professionalize more and more, as did curators in museums, as did people like registrars in museums. And as part of that kind of building of professional identity, these professions started to look at these different sorts of materials and say, well, actually, we should be responsible for that. That should be our professional responsibility. Um, you know, all of this is a bit of an oversimplification, but you know, professional archivists, particularly by the mid 20th century, had associations, they had their own journals, they had their own kind of uh, theories of archival management, um, their own training courses and education. And they started to look at museums and say, well, you've got lots of documentary material, but you don't manage it particularly effectively. Uh, there weren't many archivists working in museums at that time. Uh, there were a few around the place, uh, at places like the Smithsonian, uh, but not a lot. And so in the sort of 70s uh, in the US, for example, there was a conference on museum archives in 1979 uh, that was considered the start of a kind of museum archives movement where archivists really started to pay attention to what was happening with all this material in these institutions. Um, and they said that to manage it more effectively, it needs to be managed separately. It needs to be preferably in a separate space, in a separate kind of administrative stru structure in the institution. Uh, archivists by this time had their own ways of documenting collections and that continued to sort of develop over time. And as computerization and technology came in to support this, archivists used different systems to museum staff generally. They had different documentation processes. When you get into times like the 90s, when things like standards started to come through and into the 2000s with you know standards that could be rendered in XML, for example, archivists were using different standards and continue to use different standards to, to museum staff and museum documentation staff. And so this sort of separation uh, started with kind of the physical separation and management of this material. And that was then built into different documentation systems, different approaches to documentation. Uh, and so archivists came into a lot of these institutions, as I said, quite late. Um, I mentioned Museums Victoria, which is one of my primary kind of case studies. They got their first professional archivist in 1998. 
uh, and they were founded in 1854. So those archivists came in or that archivist came in and had 140 odd years of documentary material to try and get their head around and manage. Um, and archivists started to manage those sort of things by by kind of extracting that material out of its uh, different places around the institution and creating archival collections, creating archival storage, creating archival documentation around those things. The result of that, it improved the documentation of those collections. Uh, it did improve their physical management, probably made them more visible and accessible in a lot of ways as archival collections. But in that process of separation and kind of documentation, it broke a lot of these connections between that material and the artifacts that it referred to uh, or the specimens that were from the same collector or had the same provenance. Um, so it became physical separation and intellectual separation. Um, in one of the later chapters, I talk about dissociation and you can think of these as dissociated collections. They're material that potentially came into the institution at the same time, but based on format and technology and process and different professional approaches to these different formats or different collection formats, uh, these separations kind of got embedded in the, the way that these big institutions worked. And a lot of those separations, as you mentioned, are still visible there today. And you dedicate a, a huge amount of space, a whole chapter, in fact, to looking at that particular element of historic documentation technologies and the extent to which they've kind of contributed to shaping you know, the norms of collection documentation that we still have today and these these ongoing legacies. And I was wondering if you could maybe just give us a glimpse of, you know, what are some of these historic technologies that you see as being still really kind of having a legacy within the the kind of frameworks that we have today within museums? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, in some cases that, that sort of varies institution to institution. Um, some of the examples that I give uh, in the, um, in the book are, uh, for example, at Museums Victoria, um, there's some documentation in Museums Victoria where if you go into their current catalogue, uh, which is in uh, the EMU system that um, people who work in museums might know, um, you know, it's a big kind of modern collections management system. It's used by hundreds of institutions around the world. It's only about 20 years old or a little bit older, maybe 25 years since it was first really kind of uh, started to be conceptualised. But some of the data that's in that uh, that system is data that was captured in, say, the 1970s as part of producing microfiche catalogues. And you can see that it's the same data because in the Museums Victoria example, it's all in capital letters. And it's all in capital letters because the early documentation systems in the 70s had so little memory that they couldn't take two character sets, like an uppercase and a lowercase character set. So you couldn't have capitals and lowercase letters because that kind of essentially blew the system. The, the memory wouldn't hold those two character sets um, together. So all the data had to go in in capital letters. And then that data that was input into these systems that was done by handwriting on a form with uh, you know a form essentially covered in boxes, handwriting in capital letters, that was then sent off to be coded. It was put on tape. The tape was then converted through various processes and sorted to produce a microfiche catalog. What was handwritten on those forms in the 1970s is still, in some cases, the description that you see in the catalog today. It's data that's been migrated from one system through to the next system, through to the next system without ever really being updated. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff in there that has been updated, um, but you can still see those sort of legacies. 
And those early technologies where that data has continued through, they, they constrained the amount that people wrote about these things. Uh, it's difficult to write an extended narrative um, or uh, the story of an object uh, in any detailed way when you've got to write the whole thing in capital letters in little boxes as if you're filling out a form to you know, get a new passport or something like that. Um, you're going to keep it fairly short. You're going to keep it brief, fairly kind of fact and material based. Um, and those sort of technologies really did shape the sort of documentation that was captured at that time and that has continued to be available. Um, I mean, you also see the legacies of those splits. Uh, they're revealed um, to users and to the public uh, a lot more than they were in the past where you know, these were systems that were originally developed uh, these sort of technologies originally developed from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s for internal use in museums. They were staff systems, uh, systems by uh, highly specialized staff who knew these collections and were using them to kind of manage these collections as, as inventory in a way, um, help them retrieve things, manage the locations of things. But it was an internal catalog. You then get the emergence of the web and museums starting to go on the web in the in the mid kind of 90s was when that really started to to accelerate and then online collections started to come through and that was taking this data that was designed for internal use in these sorts of systems and putting it online and expecting that the public and other users would get some value out of this and yes they have got value out of this um, there's enormous value in seeing some of that data but also there's incredible limitations to that data because it was captured for particular purposes in some cases quite a long time ago um, and hasn't been reshaped thinking well we need to provide some more context here or we need to provide some connections to published material or archival material or photographs or audiovisual content that people might want to look at um, alongside these sort of collections and so you go to a museum uh, website, particularly for large museums, and you can see these system splits still there in the kind of user interface that you've got. Um, in a lot of cases, you can search the museum collection, like a collection of artifacts, but you can't search the archives through the same search box. You need to go to a different kind of section if you can search the archives at all. In a lot of cases, you can't. Um, you might get separate library and separate archives. You might get different departments in the same institution that, that use different databases and so you have to search them separately as a user in, in the online interfaces. So all of these kind of internal technologies and decisions around technologies, some of them dating back, you know, decades potentially, continue to shape what a user in 2021 looking at a museum website will be able to see and be able to do with the data that they see. And if we can come back, so, I mean, very much linking to this, but is this concept of disassociation, which is is really central to to what you talk about in the book. And you really explore this um, through, I mean, you look at it through various forms of museum documentation, but one of which um, is really important is the concept of the, the field books. So these are the, the field books of anthropologists, people, naturalists, explorers, and so on, um, which are, you know, these really important sites of evidence and information, but they're often disassociated from related documents or objects, artifacts, specimens. Um, and this is partially to do with, as we've kind of just covered, you know, this, this separation of archives and collections, uh, mm. the technological, uh, you know, fractures, but also things, you know, like financial restraints, time restraints, uh, questions of expertise, questions of ontology and so on. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which these types of documents, especially things like field books, 
could be reinserted into wider museum research kind of narratives um, through some of the approaches that you, you talk about in the book. Yeah, and I find field, work, field books really fascinating. Um, they're amazing kind of documents for all sorts of reasons. Uh, uh, again, I sort of reflecting on the origins of some of this work and the work that I did with um, with Reby Taylor. Uh, she wrote a fantastic book about uh, Ernest Westlake called Into the Heart of Tasmania. Um, and that draws on the notebooks that Westlake wrote when he was in Tasmania uh, collecting stone tools. Um, this collection of stone tools, no one really knows what to do with it. It's like 13,000 stone tools, doesn't have a lot of meaning, um, doesn't really speak very much to, to people who aren't at least experts in stone tools. But his field books, he was traveling around Tasmania speaking with people about uh, the Aboriginal population, uh, about Aboriginal people and Aboriginal practices uh, as they were in the past. Uh, and contains this, it contains bits of Aboriginal language, um, it contains his observations, uh, it contains this really rich kind of, sort of knowledge in there. Um, you also get field books where people include, you know, things about their family life or their personal life or, you know, the hotel that they're staying in when they're doing field work or people that they met along the way or what the weather's like or um, all these kind of details that really bring to life these processes of, of traveling out in the world, uh, meeting people, collecting materials, collecting knowledge. And because of this kind of mix of stuff that's in there, people don't really know what to do with them or where they fit, or at least they fit in kind of different places um, depending on your perspective. So you can get field books in a single institution that are managed in very different ways. Some might be managed as part of a collection. Some might be managed as, you know, alongside artifacts as part of a museum collection. Uh, some might be managed as archival documents and sort of separate from artifacts and specimens. Um, there are examples of field books that might be kept, you know, in the same cabinet as a as a bunch of natural history specimens, for example, because the two kind of travel together. Um, but there are other examples where they've been entirely separated and dissociated, and uh, the field book is kind of treated as a as a sort of textual and um, informational source in its own right, and it's very difficult to to get back to the material that's referred to in there. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, the individual institutions at Museums Victoria, this is partly based on provenance. So and if a staff member writes a field book as part of an expedition, it's treated as an institutional record. And so it's part of the institutional archives. If an external collector donates material to the museum, including field books, that goes into the museum's collection because it's not an institutional record. Uh, it's not a staff record. Um, so in instances like that, they get split. Um, you go to one part of the institution to find external kind of field books. You go to another part to find the field books of staff and internal ones. Um, but they're also difficult to manage because they're kind of on the boundary of things. Um, they're, I talk about them as kind of boundary objects in that sense. Um, they're, they're kind of relational objects in their own right um, because they're evidence of things coming across the kind of threshold of the museum, things being collected. Uh, they're part of the collection and its documentation, but they're also uh, sort of separate evidence from that um, collection. And so I think it's important to reflect on field books uh, as a kind of possible item that could be a focal point for, as you say, kind of reinserting them into, into broader narratives by revealing the evidence that underpins what we know about collections. 
um, to our users and in different sort of ways to how we do it at the moment. Um, and what do I mean by that? Uh, I mean, if you think of going, again, I'll use a collections online kind of example. If you go to an online collection site and you look at an artifact, and let's say it's a, um, you know, a mask that's part of an ethnographic collection um, that was, there's an example um, in the, the Cambridge Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, uh, a mask from the, the Torres Strait that was collected. Uh, well, there's part of the collections of Alfred Haddon, who went to the Torres Strait from Cambridge um, in 1898 and collected a lot of material from the Torres Strait in the um, sort of just off the, the far northern tip of Australia. That mask, if you look at the information about it, uh, for example, what ceremony it was part of or uh, what it's called in the local language, you look at the documentation of that and you think, well, how do they know that? How do they know? Where does that knowledge come from? How do they know what data it was made? How do, they, how do they know who made it? And that sort of information is in the field books that are in the institution. Um, if we make those field books accessible and available alongside those artifacts that are visibly related to them, if they're digitized and they're increasingly, you know, field books are getting digitized and transcribed. Uh, if a user could kind of follow the path from an artifact to this really rich, evocative kind of archival record, um, and read about when this thing was first acquired or when it was first made or the people that uh, that the collector met when they were acquiring this object uh, or in more problematic instances when they stole objects in particular contexts or um, took stuff without permission, which is also recorded in field books. It starts to highlight these sort of histories of exchange uh, that happen in institutions and starts to provide that kind of evidence of where this knowledge comes from. Um, and that starts to shift the authority of the institution in interesting ways. It's not just trust us in what we say about this object because we're a large museum and you should believe what we say. We're the experts. Uh, here's Here are the facts. Uh, that's it. It should be, here's what we know about this object and here's how we know it. Here's some of the evidence that's related to it. Uh, and here's how our understanding of that has changed since this moment when it was first collect collected. And this is why we wouldn't work in that particular way now and provide that kind of reflexive um, approach to the processes and the, the different pasts of these, these sort of institutions. I think field books in particular um, have a really kind of potentially key role to play there um, as part of revealing some of those narratives, the problematic ones as well as the as the sort of fascinating ones. They certainly do seem to function as this kind of microcosm of all of these things coming together. But you actually then look at um, a, a very different um, example in order to explore how so many of these topics that we've covered come together in the book. And that's through looking at the Donald Thompson collection, which is now on permanent loan to Museums Victoria. I was wondering if you could just tell listeners a little bit about the history of this particular collection, maybe why you chose it, um, and really how it encapsulates a lot of the concerns that are raised in the previous chapters of the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so Donald Thompson was a, a really interesting kind of figure in the history of Australian anthropology. Um, so he was born in 1901 uh, at the start of the 20th century. Uh, as with a lot of um, anthropologists around that time, or at least many of the sort of key anthropologists working in Australia, uh, he started out actually working in natural history um, or studying natural history, he studied zoology, he studied botany, um, but he became interested in anthropology and anthropo anthropological study and wanted to be part of expeditions that were, were going out in the field. Uh, he, I think he applied to be on an expedition and then he was told, well, you actually should go and 
study anthropology and um, studied a bit more formally because there were courses available finally at this time. Um, so he was one of the first students or perhaps the first student in um, in Australia to complete a new diploma in anthropology at the University of Sydney that he completed in the 1920s. Uh, and almost as soon as he finished that diploma, uh, he then got on an expedition and started traveling around the country. Um, particularly, he went to Cape York, uh, which is um, the sort of, for those who know a map of Australia, it's the it's a kind of pointy bit on the north, um, on the on the eastern side of the the continent um, that goes right up towards Papua New Guinea. Um, it's that kind of big point that comes off um, the top of Australia. Uh, he also did a bunch of work in Arnhem Land, which is to the west of that, uh, but again in sort of far northern Australia. He collected enormous numbers of artifacts. Uh, you know, he travelled on expeditions for about forty years or so, up until the the sixties collected enormous number of artifacts. Because of his natural history background, he also collected specimens, um, so natural history specimens. He took huge numbers of field notes. Um, when his field notes were transcribed uh, after his death, uh, I think there are about 10,000 fool's cap pages of transcription got produced uh, as a result of his handwritten notes. He took beautiful photographs, um, some incredibly visually rich photographs. Uh, there is a there's actually a famous um, photograph of his 10 canoes where uh, that photograph of his and a number of other photographs uh, were used as the inspiration for the film um, 10 canoes. Uh, so, you know, these visually kind of rich images, all this material that kind of function together. So uh, one of the examples I use in the book is him uh, working in Cape York and looking at dugong hunting in Cape York. Um, so dugongs are, are these big uh, kind of sea mammals like manatees uh, that live up in the northern coastlines of Australia, feed off seagrass meadows. Uh, I was looking at the hunting of these of these animals by the, the local communities. Um, and they're hunted using canoes, using rope uh, wound from hibiscus fiber uh, and harpoons. So he was photographing these these dugong hunting expeditions. Uh, he was collecting essentially natural history specimens like the plant materials and things that went into making these artifacts. He collected artifacts themselves. He collected dugong skulls um, and dugong specimens. Uh, and this material went into his collection, essentially, um, as did material from all these other expeditions that he went on uh, over those, those four decades or so. Um, but he had this deep mistrust of institutions, uh, partly because some of his material was lost in a fire um, in an institutional store early in his career, uh, and partly because he was a, a bit of a just kind of anti-authoritarian figure, didn't really like people telling him what to do. Um, so he kept the collection kind of to himself uh, through his life. And it was only after his death in 1970 that... Um, the collection really came to light and there were negotiations between his family, the University of Melbourne, where he'd worked and the National Museum of Victoria um, to kind of bring this material together and to document it more effectively and to to work out the richness of what was there. Um, you know, and jumping forward a bit, uh, you know, by the end of that process, this collection is now considered one of the most significant ethnographic collections in the world. It's on the UNESCO Memory of the World Register. Um, you know, it's renowned as, a, as an amazing collection of ethnographic material uh, from Australian Indigenous communities. 
but the documentation and the unpacking of that took uh, decades, essentially. Um, so from 1973, when it first went on loan to the National Museum of Victoria, the documentation process started. And it was 14 years from that 1973 agreement until the first kind of detailed guide was published to the collection, uh, which was a microfiche guide. Um, I won't go into all the details of the technology and things behind that, uh, but people can read about it um, if they're interested. Uh, but one of the strengths of the collection were those relationships between all those materials. And interestingly, in that microfiche guide, those relationships are all there. They're all visible, or at least many of them are visible. So if you look at an artifact like a, a dugong hunting harpoon and the ropes that are used um, for dugong hunting, you then get these references down the bottom that says this is related to this set of field notes and these seven photographs of uh, this sort of harpoon or this sort of rope being manufactured and these natural history of these botanical specimens. And you get these codes down the bottom that uh, essentially include those relationships in the guide so that you can see that there's this connected material. It's still difficult to get to that connected material, but it's at least visible. Interestingly, in those transfers of technology, those relationships aren't visible to current users who look up that same material in the uh, new kind of collections online site that Museums Victoria runs. Uh, yes, there are beautiful images on there. There's some uh, you know, good metadata about community and about language groups and culture and those sort of elements for discrete objects. But that sense of this being part of this really rich kind of relational collection um, has essentially been lost or at least is a lot less visible than it was in the past, despite experts and scholars saying that that's one of the real strengths of this as a collection. Um, so I wanted to explore that in some detail because it was such a significant collection because it had had so much effort put into documenting it, uh, you know, people working on this for uh, 15 or 20 years uh, or more, um, in some cases, for some parts of it. Um, I thought it was really key to look at a collection that had had effort put into it to see how the documentation had evolved and changed. Uh, it's quite easy to, to look at collections that have been neglected and say, well, the documentation is not very good. Uh, but it's not very good because no no real kind of effort has been put into it. If you look at a collection where it's been the focus of scholarly and kind of museum attention for decades uh, and has had this concerted effort to document it, you can actually see how the processes and practices that were applied to that collection shape that knowledge in different ways through time. Uh, so there's a whole lot of kind of complexity there in a in a key collection like that that an institution takes on. Uh, and the work that then goes into making it available um, that, you know, reveal those sort of broader practices and systems, those approaches to the description of artifacts uh, and the way that institutions continue to document artifacts as discrete items in a lot of cases uh, with discrete item records without providing the visibility uh, of that kind of rich documentary material or the visibility of the links between ethnographic artifacts and natural history and uh, other parts of the collections. Uh, so yeah, an, an interesting example that reveals some of those issues. It really is a fascinating um, example that I highly recommend people go and have a look at. But you, you then build upon this uh, a little bit in then the final chapter. And this is where you you start to reflect on the conceptual frameworks that underpin the collections documentation that we, we currently are working with. And you think about 
how we might really reconsider the hierarchies of knowledge um, that currently dictate museum knowledge models, um, which are which are very hierarchical for anyone who's, who's kind of coming from outside of, of the museum uh, kind of world, you know, have a very, very kind of strict hierarchical um, nature. And you think a little bit about how we can include more relational forms. And you, you talk about how we can take things from uh, fields like ecology, uh, things like anthropology, as well as, and incredibly importantly, um, uh, considering the context in which you're writing this, from Indigenous communities um, as well and other knowledge groups and knowledge um, creators. I was wondering if you could just give us a, a brief overview of what you kind of mean by this and how we might start integrating these different disciplinary and also kind of knowledge group approaches uh, to uh, kind of museum documentation and what that might mean also for, for different user groups within museums. Because, of course, collections documentation is not just for curators. It's not just for researchers. It's also, and increasingly importantly, for the public. Um, and we can also go into bigger questions of what is a museum and who is it for? <laughs> Um, but we might save that for another day. Um, yes. But if you could just tell us a little bit about that, that would be super. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you mentioned in in the question there, that uh, there has been a tendency in a lot of cases to use kind of tree-based structures, to use linear hierarchies, to use things where um, an item needs to be put in essentially one kind of box and not just physically put in one box, but intellectually put in one box or, or one position within a location. Uh, and part of, of what I'm talking about here throughout the book uh, is that things need to be able to exist in multiple spaces or connected into multiple contexts at the same time. Um, so you know, yes, a field book is an archival document, but it's also related to a collection artifact and it shouldn't have to live either in the museum collection or in the archives and you have to pick which side of the fence it goes on uh, which is how some of these kind of uh, classification structures and disciplinary structures uh, often work uh, it needs to be able to exist in sort of two spaces or connected into two spaces simultaneously um, and i started looking at some of the sort of theoretical models around this uh, as you mentioned uh, so there are things like coral reefs that have been used uh, for quite some time to to think about different kind of uh, structures that include hierarchies, but they also include kind of this notion of aggregation and accumulation of activity by different kind of specimens or organisms that create different structures over time. Um, there's you no, know, particularly with the idea of the tree structure, there's new understandings of, uh, you know, forests and forest ecology with this concept of the wood wide web, which is a kind of fungal network that uh, connects trees and other sort of plants in a forest under the surface of the ground and distributes nutrients around the forest between different kind of trees. So trees aren't necessarily these kind of separate organisms with no connection to the things around them in the way that they've perhaps thought of in the past. Uh, also other models like trails or uh, pathways, uh, trails have been used for, uh, well, going back to really early kind of speculative technologies like Vannevar Bush writing about uh, sort of Memex machine in the 1940s uh, and about creating trails between different sets of material that could help capture knowledge in interesting sorts of ways. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, you're looking at indigenous knowledge systems or non-Western knowledge models uh, notions are kind of weaving notions where you know, there are models of knowledge where disciplinary splits like natural history and uh, 
natural history and say human history or so society and culture or people and animals and landscape, the distinctions between those things uh, actually don't operate in the same way as they do within these kind of more rigid Western classification models. Um, you know, stories that connect up uh, people and landscape and events and animals and uh, plants and sort of other elements. These stories uh, on country that Indigenous communities use as part of these kind of woven braids of knowledge that people can follow and to maintain knowledge over really, really long periods of time. Um, I, was, I was sort of exploring these different analogies to think about how we can kind of push ourselves out of some of the models that we're in at the moment or think our way into some new ways of doing things. Um, and so that's about, you know, if we think of from a, an archival perspective, for example, um, if we think of a, an archival item as as an item that's connected in a sort of broader ecology into a variety of different context, contexts or areas rather than just a kind of isolated self-contained thing. Uh, what have we thought about a museum object and documented it, documenting the way it's woven into a particular context and into broader sort of social or um, or ecological structures. Um, the word context itself has a background in kind of weaving and the weaving of fabrics and the weaving of threads. Um, so it's about how things are woven into the world and, and how can we describe that more effectively uh, through kind of relational structures rather than discrete self-contained descriptions. Uh, and you talked about users, uh, that people are moving through collections and moving through these kind of knowledge structures all the time. Curators do it, exhibition designers do it, researchers do it, but also the general public is moving through collections. Collections are brought together in exhibitions and new relationships or aggregates are formed. Uh, what if we could see these connections and uh, these different sort of paths that people follow through these collections for different purposes uh, and see the the sort of well-worn paths between things that people use all the time, like those kind of desire paths that you see in parks going across the grass where it's been worn down by multiple users uh, and provide options for people to follow their own paths through these collections and potentially forge new paths through things. But then future users can access those same paths uh, rather than having to kind of start from scratch and piece things together themselves. Um, so I think it really is important that we we engage with indigenous scholars and scholarship as part of this sort of space, particularly when we're talking about things like ethnographic collections. Um, you know, this is we need to recognize uh, as part of contemporary museums that we're documenting material uh, where this material is is not just a discrete artifact that we're looking to put on a plinth in an exhibition space or that we're looking to put in a box in a museum store. And therefore we're describing that thing. It's part of a, a really kind of rich and complex social and cultural uh, structure and set of structures. Uh, and we need to defer to those sort of knowledge systems to think about how to document those effectively in ways that supports and, and fosters that kind of community knowledge in useful ways, uh, rather than thinking that as soon as it comes out of that community context, we can just push it into a kind of Western classification model um, so I guess with all these kind of analogies and ways of looking at things, none of them are perfect. None of them are, I'm not saying, um, we can, we can take a model like a coral reef and say, well, let's document our collections like coral reefs and everything will be fixed. Uh, 
but it's kind of thinking through these analogies as a way of questioning our current systems and our approaches. Like, what if we could do things differently? What if we could think our way out of our current space? Uh, or what if we could use these analogies to challenge the way that we do things at the moment? If we did document something more like a, um, you know, a set of trails or an ecological system, what might that look like and what would the benefits be? Uh, and hopefully some of those kind of thought processes can help to develop practice in, in new and interesting ways. And then the book does finish on actually thinking about some of the ways in which we can bring about those analogies, right? So you're looking at um, some of the technologies and some of the, the kind of digital approaches, things like CDOC CRM, humanities networked infrastructure, linked open data, these kinds of approaches and how they actually might facilitate um, some of those kind of coral reef structures and, and so on. And I was just wondering if you might give listeners a, a kind of a picture almost of this this future museum what what might the relational museum look like um in embracing some of these technologies and some of these um approaches um and also perhaps if if you if you would like we might i might push you towards this and kind of speculating on some of the larger social and political changes that that actually need to to kind of take place in order to really usher in this new era of museum documentation and relational museums yeah, and I mean, that's quite a big question and there's a lot in there, um, but I'll pick out a few kind of elements of it. Um, before I talk about specific technologies, I mean, one thing I do want to be clear about uh, and uh, hopefully is clearly stated in the book is that, um, you know, this isn't intended, including this sort of last chapter or the conclusion uh, is not intended as a kind of how-to guide saying, now we've reconceptualized things, here are the technologies that we can apply. And if we lock A, B and C together, then we'll have this new uh, version of the museum and its documentation that will do everything in a better way. Um, it's, uh, I think, going to be a lot more complex and a, and a lot more complicated journey than that. But uh, having said all of that, I think there are certainly practical things that can be done to start to shift the way that museums work. Um, it's thinking more about collections as data and as rich relational data and thinking more about collections management systems as knowledge management systems that we're wanting to use to capture these uh, rich kind of interconnected uh, networks of knowledge that, that exist in these institutions. We wanna actually use those systems to help manage that knowledge more effectively. And the idea of you know, collections management systems being knowledge management systems, again, has a, has a lineage that's you know, at least kind of 25 years um, 25 years of that sort of discussion happening in the museum sector. So it's not a new idea, but it hasn't really happened yet. Um, in a lot of cases, the sort of standards like CDOC CRM, which um, you know, CDOC CRM is, is sometimes criticized for being enormously complicated, uh, and it is really complicated, but it contains a lot of complexity that's kind of underutilized and I think can support these sorts of uh, approaches um, if people uh, again, come with a, a conceptual knowledge and a way of thinking about this uh, rather than thinking that the standard will solve the problems that we have in this sort of space. Um, and we can use things like disambiguation sort of technologies like uh, they're saying, well, these three records for this person are actually the same person. So let's bring them together so we can create a, a node that we can use to start relating things in our archive with things in our library, with things in our museum, for example. Um, linked open data can be useful in those sort of spaces, but all of these things have their limits. And, and one of the limits on it is the limits of our collections documentation. Um, 
you know, the linked open data movement, for example, uh, there's some great potential in a lot of that work uh, and some great work has already been done. But too often there's the kind of, um, I think, you know, Tim Berners-Lee many years ago stood up in a, in a conference and saying, raw data now, give us your raw data. Uh, but museums don't have raw data. They have, you know, no one has raw data. It's data that's been processed and accumulated over time. Uh, it's been kind of cooked. Um, and it needs to continually be added to, it needs to be enriched. Uh, and the more we improve our data and enrich it, the more we can do with technologies like linked open data, the more we can do with complex standards, um, the more we can do with sort of aggregating content from multiple institutions and linking it up together. Um, so, you know, I think we should be aiming for these kind of approaches, but we need to keep in mind the fact that uh, this isn't going to be solved by technology. It's going to be solved by people doing work and evolving the way that they think about these technologies and the sort of data that they want to capture. Um, you mentioned the kind of social and political changes. I mean, some of this is about relinquishing authority in these institutions. It's about uh, you know, not just saying, well, we're making our collections accessible by digitizing them and putting them online. It's institutions wanting to make the, the knowledge and the rich knowledge that they have about those collections as available as possible, along with the evidence for that knowledge in things like archival collections and in other material. It's really exposing the kind of inner workings of the museum and its knowledge uh, in a way that, that hasn't really been done up to this point. Uh, museums still kind of hold that, uh, try and hold on to that authority in some cases. Um, it's also in some cases not making that material publicly accessible. It's making it more accessible to particular communities, to particular users. It's kind of data sovereignty issues here, particularly with uh, indigenous communities uh, where material is being collected from them. It's important that these institutions can make that knowledge, the knowledge that they have about those collections available back to those communities more effectively than they, they have been up to this point. Um, sort of vision of the future here would be an institution uh, that is really intent on making its knowledge uh, sort of visible, accessible, sustainable beyond the kind of uh, expertise of individual staff, for example. Uh, you know, that expertise is always going to be there. It's always going to be important. Uh, but there's so much more knowledge about how all this material relates uh, and the evidence for the knowledge that we have that could be captured uh, as part of these systems. Uh, and you mentioned humanities networked infrastructure, for example, the Honey project. Um, that's just one example uh, of an interface that's trying to build an interface where the ability to make those connections and document connections between things doesn't reside in the institutional space. It's actually out there in the community. Um, it's deferring to, to people who want to describe and define relationships in any way they want using their own language. Uh, it's not trying to push people to use a particular classification or a particular drop-down menu. Um, it's actually, you know, exposing this stuff to the kind of messiness of the way that people see the world from their own perspective. And that has social and political implications. Uh, you know, if we're thinking about larger social and political changes, I mean, we're in a, in a period where through things like Black Lives Matter movements, there have been statues that are being torn down. There's public activism and debates about history and the past and what the truth is of various things. In Australia, there's like push for indigenous self-determination uh, that continues. There's calls for voice and treaty and truth-telling um, as well as data sovereignty and kind of knowledge sovereignty. 
and there are a new generation of professionals i think coming into museums and and other institutions like archives and libraries uh, these sort of big collecting institutions that have been thought of as relatively conservative um, some of the new professionals coming through uh, or the emerging professionals coming to those spaces really think about those institutions and their place in society uh, and the past of those institutions in a very different way um, to the way that their predecessors perhaps did um, and see their role within the community and within society um, as a very kind of socially engaged role uh, pursuing particular ideas of kind of social justice. Um, I think the knowledge in these institutions, how it's documented, how it's captured, uh, can can play a really kind of key role in that space. Um, but you know where we will be in twenty years and how far towards that kind of vision we will get, um, I think it will vary enormously from institution to institution, and will depend on a whole lot of kind of complex factors both inside the institutions and, and more broadly. Well, I'm certain the book will uh, contribute, I hope, to that debate and those changes um, in the meantime. But um, before we finish, um, uh, because I'm sure you have other things to be doing, could you just tell us a little bit, Mike, about what you're currently working on or where some of your research is going? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of currently working on things, um, we're currently in lockdown in Canberra uh, and I have a one-year-old at home, so it's a challenge to work on anything at the moment. But uh, beyond that, um, so my current role is at the Research Centre for Deep History, which is in the School of History at the Australian National University. And uh, this idea of deep history uh, is essentially looking at longer histories of um, of humans on this continent. Um, it's working with indigenous communities, uh, looking at the way that narratives and uh, understanding of country um, can be viewed as, as history that uh, goes well beyond any kind of colonial notion of what Australian history might be. It's getting beyond that kind of model that there's prehistory and history and that it's all based around text and text being the kind of um, the pivot point between those two things. And actually saying, well, this is all history. And if we start using different sources and working with communities to um, understand histories of the last hundred, you know, many hundred years or thousands of years, um, then we can really start opening up people's understanding of uh, kind of changing histories and cultures and communities uh, on this continent. Uh, as part of that, there's things like digital mapping work. Um, we're doing some work around you know, mapping aspects of community knowledge and stories on country both around long histories of, of culture and connection as well as more recent histories um i'm also thinking as part of that about deep history in museums um you know the, this sort of long understanding of the long history of of humanity is something that's emerged slowly over time uh, and in an australian context in particular i've been interested in uh, how exhibitions of indigenous materials uh, have started to incorporate those ideas of thousands of years of, of culture and occupation and how that's been represented uh, in museums and communicated to the public through artifacts uh, and through text panels and, and images and other sort of material. Um, and more broadly, that in part has led me into thinking about museum exhibitions more uh, continuing some of this uh, this kind of thinking about relational spaces and museums uh, and exhibitions as kind of highly relational spaces, but ones where a whole lot of relationships come together for a, a sort of defined period of time and then disperse again, and how we can potentially document 
the the kind of rich relationalities that that emerge through something like a museum exhibition so that um that exhibition can be or the knowledge that's generated during that kind of whole period uh, can be maintained more effectively for for longer periods of time uh, beyond just things like exhibition catalogs and and photographs and you know 3d representations and those sorts of things seems kind of particularly pertinent at the moment uh with so many travel restrictions and exhibitions that people will not be able to get to um how do we make sure that 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 knowledge at least survives uh, in a way that can be used in a variety of different ways so that's what's keeping me busy at the moment that sounds incredibly exciting. I look forward to reading about it all um, in the future. Listeners, the book is Artifacts, Archives and Documentation in the Relational Museum, published by Routledge 2021. Mike Jones, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.